Good morning. How's everybody doing? Man, it is so good to get to share with you guys today. Uh, I'm excited because uh, more of my family is here. I can't say we're all here today, but my wife Valerie, my daughter Miranda are with us today, and my son Nate is, is here as well. We just left one of them behind in Missouri uh, this week, but and I uh, get to see an old friend. Nate is here uh, going through school. That's the greatest thing about Maxwell is you get to run into old faces. And uh, I think in the last 10 years, our faces have gotten a little bit older. Uh, one of the things I love about coming to church here at Christ Community is there's two things that you guys do really well consistently is every time I come, the worship's always authentic. It's always at a heart of worship before God. Uh, you know, I've been in a lot of churches over the years, all over the world, different countries, uh, different languages, and you can tell uh, when it's authentic and when it's real. And I love that about Christ Community. And, you know, it's, it's good worship. But the other thing I really like is the spirit of encouragement that's always here. You know, when you come, you're going to get three people that gen genuinely want to know how you're doing. It's, it's not just a superficial uh, handshake at the door, which you get at some churches. And I think that reflects the DNA of uh, the spiritual leadership here. I think, you know, when you see Pastor Keith, he's not going to let you go unless he tells you something about you that he likes. Have, has anybody else noticed that, or is that just me? I, I would venture to guess that's why you're here today, uh, to some small part, because you, he connected with you as your pastor uh, when you walked through the door. And I will tell you, after having been a pastor for over 30 years, uh, it's great to be here to kind of get recharged or get refilled up, get my batteries replugged. And I need that sometimes. And I'll bet you he needs that sometimes. So since I get to be the guest speaker and say the things that he never gets to say up here, <laughs> uh, I want to encourage you, when you see Pastor Keith the next time, find something specific that you like about him and speak it into his life and say, I appreciate about this uh, that you did for me or that you do, Pastor Keith. And I love you, and I'm so glad you're my pastor. Can we all do that next time we see him? Amen. All right, because I know he needs that. All right, so that's my exhortation this morning, uh, and how much I appreciate you guys for being here today. It's uh, St. Patty's Day, right, uh, season, and it's a weird holiday. I'm Irish, so it's not so weird to me, but uh, I, I tried to get my son a shirt that said, uh, kiss me, I'm Irish. I couldn't find it, but I thought that would be so funny, you know, a little Vietnamese guy wearing a kiss me on <laughs> I'm Irish, mostly in the last name. Uh, it's a weird holiday, right? I mean, be, beyond the green uh, beer and the green rivers and uh, the clovers and uh, the green clothing, uh, what's this thing all about? Why do we have a St. Patrick's Day? And, and of course, if you're Irish, you know why you have a St. Patrick's Day. My dad's name was Patrick. I knew why we had a St. Patrick's Day. We have a St. Patrick's Day because in the 4th century, a 16-year-old boy was captured by Irish raiders in England and stolen away to Ireland to be a slave. And he was there for about six, seven years, uh, forced to tend the herds, and in a dream, God said, it's time for you to leave. And he ran away about 200 miles to the coast and caught a boat back to England. And he thought he has, had escaped, and during his time in the fields, uh, he was alone. He was spending a lot of time just between him and God, which I understand. I was a cop in the Air Force, and that's how I, I got called to ministry. And Patrick became a Christian through that experience. In the middle of a pagan world, he gave his life to Christ in slavery. And when he came back, he had another dream, and God said, you're going back, Patrick, and you're going to save Ireland. What a difficult thing to do, to go from a place where you've been subjugated and beaten and mistreated 
And God says, now that's your mission field. And so Patrick went back and he understood the language and he understood the culture and he understood the religion of the pagans and he used all of those things to help them understand the one true God. And they developed a really interesting kind of spirituality out of that that uh, looked at the normal day-to-day. Sweeping the floor had a prayer. Going to war had a prayer. Everything in life had a prayer because there was no task that was beneath glorifying God. Even in the most mundane, the most difficult, the most um, uncelebrated of his circumstances, Patrick taught them to honor God. And the entire nation was converted to Christ. We don't always see why we're going through the difficulty of the day, but God has a, a way of bringing it to his glory. As a result of sin in the world, bad things happen, don't they? One person subjugates another, a, a man mistreats his wife, parents beat their children. Things like slavery and, uh, and um, pushing people down so that you can make more money and uh, inequity in the world come about. It's because we live in a world without this one central authority that can determine right from wrong, yes from no, do from don't. That's actually the definition of anarchy. If you didn't know that, it just means that there's not some central figure telling you, yes, you can or no, you can't. And we live in that kind of world where people embrace this idea that I can do it my way. You know, it's this Frank Sinatra doctrine, right? Ephesians 5, uh, which you heard about last week, Paul spoke about marital relationships. And, and Paul, he is writing to a world that does not have a godly view of what it means to have a Christian home. It has no concept of a Christian home. I would venture to guess the vast majority of everybody here today was raised in the South. Is that, can I, is that a safe estimate? Right? You know what a Christian home looks like, whether or not you're raised in one enough of the south is christian you have a pretty good concept of that you might i mean i'm from the northwest maybe i'm wrong here but uh the bible belt is the bible belt because there's so many churches here and there's enough of the culture to understand the basic expectations of god in the world but when paul was writing to the church in ephesus they had no such concept they had the roman house and the roman house was very different he usually had the, the father in charge of the house, the pater familius who was in charge, and he had so much power he could sell his own children into slavery if he needed the money. He was in charge of who married who, who did what, and included in that house were probably a, a number of slaves that he had direct control over and where they went, how they lived, and who they belonged to. He could punish or even kill family members if he decided that he didn't like what they had done. And so Paul is writing to this, this church that is coming out of a pagan identity, and he said, who you are in Christ doesn't look like who you were before. It doesn't look anything like the world that you came out of. And so Paul is kind of designing a whole new fabric of a family. He's reestablishing relationships. He's, he's reorganizing them in a way that makes sense before God, not in one that makes sense to the world around them. And Paul gives some very strong words in this passage. It, it doesn't really make sense in the English because in the English you, you, we don't have this kind of phraseology, but it, basically when he uses this kind of tense, it's almost like putting in all caps, you know, like if you're texting or somebody that you don't know is texting into your group. Uh, it, it's, it's like putting it in all caps saying, pay attention to this because this is important. And he uses the words obey, 
honor, stop provoking, instruct, obey, and don't mistreat. And those words are very important. Those are like the big points in this passage. Ephesians 6, 1, we've, he's already talked about the relationship of a, a man to a woman. And he says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. Well, the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy had been given to him hundreds of years before. And Paul is not reintroducing the Ten Commandments and saying, okay, old law, new church, you've got to follow all the same rules and regulations. What he does is he takes the old law and he says, okay, let's make sense of this now that we know Jesus. It's not just a bunch of rules, it's not just a bunch of regulations, but it's a, a, a principle of how we treat each other that we get from the law that makes sense now that we know Jesus. And it's like before we came to Christ, we're like, those Christians are crazy. You know, they have a bunch of weird rules, don't they? And then we come to Jesus and we're like, well, now that makes a little bit more sense. You know, and there's times I still think, wow, we Christians are crazy. But as I read through the scripture, Paul says, look, there were 10 commandments. The first four or five, they talk about loving God. But the next one that comes, it talks about loving your parents. Well, that is a shift in tone, all right? You already love God. You're Christians. I'm writing to you, Ephesians. You know who Jesus is, but now I'm going to talk to you about how to treat each other. And it comes from the law, and the law says to honor your father and your mother. And he says it's the first law that comes with a promise. And it's interesting because we talk so much about grace in the church, sometimes we forget that the Bible also teaches us that if we act in a certain way, it has some consequences in our lives, both negative and positive. Has anybody else encountered that in Scripture? Am I the only one? Well, right here, Paul says, look, if you live in a certain way, it's going to have positive consequences. And one of those ways is that if we as children obey our parents, we're going to have a long life on the earth. He doesn't explain why, but I, I think we can make a few surmises from that. One of the things is that through all of Old Testament literature, there's this, this thing called wisdom literature, and you're probably familiar with Proverbs. Proverbs is wisdom literature, and it's written from the perspective of a father to a son. So if you read through, like, say, Proverbs chapter 1, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Hear, my child, your father's instruction, and do not reject your mother's teaching, for they are a fair garland in your head and penance for your neck. My child, if sinners entice you, do not consent. So Paul is looking back at the Ten Commandments. He's looking back at the wisdom literature, and he said, listen, if we obey our parents, and our parents are godly, that's implicit in the passage, but if we obey their instruction, we're going to live a long time. Children learn obedience at home, and, and I have noticed firsthand that if you give a kid anything they want, it'll make your life easier in the short run and much harder in the long run that if we uh, make our kids feel more comfortable by not wanting anything, by not ever having consequences, they may not cry as much in the now, but later on their life is going to be a train wreck. And you parents are going to be responsible for it. it, it this passage acknowledges that there's rightful authority in, the, in being a parent and rightful deference to that authority. It's different I'm going to foot stomp this. It's different than the word that Paul uses for wives submit to your husbands, which you learned about last week. That word, 
really implies coming alongside uh, the natural leadership of, of a husband, uh, the two working together as a team. This is obedience, obedience of a child to a parent. This is very different. It, it acknowledges that the parent is in authority and the child has to learn from the parent. Uh, this is in the Greek. If you don't like it, you need to talk to Paul about it. I'm just telling you what it says in the passage. Um, so as we grow as children, and in this case, uh, the family, those parents and kids were probably together through, for a lifetime. You know, uh, In the biblical times, having lots of children was your retirement plan, right? If I have more kids, they're going to take care of me. When I'm old, I'm never going to go hungry. We don't have that system in America, do we? Uh, we we kind of depend on our uncle uh, to take care of our retirement. But having said that, he goes on to use the word honor. And I think there's a natural transition that goes between children from uh, obey to honor, isn't there? So as we grow, as children, we have to obey our parents unless they ask us to do something that's wrong or illegal, such as if one parent says to your child, hey, you need to lie about what your other parent did so I can get custody, that would be wrong. Or if a parent says, hey, go to the store and steal some steaks so we can have a nice dinner tonight, that would be wrong, and a, a kid shouldn't obey that. And I've actually heard of both those examples as a pastor happening. Um, but children should obey their parents even when it's tough. You know, I, I remember when I became a born-again Christian, my dad was not really crazy about that. And he said, we got to go to our church before we can go to that church. And I honored him in that uh, as long as I was in high school. The honor, though, that's where my feet need to get kind of pulled in a little bit because I'm about to step on my own toes. How do we honor our parents as adults? When was the last time you called your mama? If your parents had nowhere to go, would you take them in? If your parents are in assisted living, have you gone to visit them? And when was the last time? Is it, it's getting hot in here, right? Uh, the reality is sometimes in our culture, we don't honor our parents in the way that we should. And God said, your parents have earned and deserve your honor, even if you don't think they do. And the way that we talk to them, now this, get ready, this one, as I was writing this, was just kind of one of those aha moments. The way you treat your parents is the way your kids are going to treat you. And so we should be training our kids really well right now in how to treat us as we get older. Children are told to obey and honor their parents so that they might have long life. And as we learn from our parents, we learn how to have life. Because the next verse says, And fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in discipline and instruction in the Lord. So Paul turns to the fathers and says, You're not off the hook, dads. You have to train your kids. And I, I believe this applies to mothers as well. But Paul singles out the dads. And he says, You've got a job to do. If you want your kids to obey, you're going to have to teach them what obedience means. You're going to have to give them instruction. And the word that he uses here, he's talking not just about beating your kids. And, and a lot of books out there, uh, I think to our embarrassment as Christians, just focus on spare the rod and spoil the child. And you're going to see them out there. And I'm not talking about not disciplining your kids. I think there's a principle there. But this principle goes beyond punishment. Teaching your children is more than just giving them limitations and consequences. It means taking the time to explain to them why they need to do the right thing, doing the right thing with them, 
working with them so that they learn it, mentoring them. It's a lot harder than saying, if you do that, you're going you're gonna to get it. And we've all seen parents do that, right? That's parenting from convenience. It's a, it's a, if you do what I don't want you to do, I'm going to give you a, a, a spanking so that I don't have to deal with it anymore. And I think the implication that we get from Scripture is that we need to spend a lot of time teaching our kids. And that takes a lot of time away from things we might want to do like work or hobbies or uh, anything else that's a distraction. You name it. We have to take time helping our kids understand not just what to do, but why to do it out of a relationship with us. That will transform them over a lifetime. Whereas I think just the idle threat of if you do that again, I'm going to come do something about it. That just tells them to do it when you're not looking. Have you ever thought in a situation with a parent, if I just get the best of them this, this one time, then they'll never do that again? Maybe I'm the only one, but uh, I know that when my oldest daughter was very young, I think she was about four, she's not here so I can use her in the sermon without getting in trouble, uh, I corrected her, and then I corrected her again, and then I corrected her again, thinking if I really hammer this home, she'll never do that again, right? And she just cried, she goes, Dad, don't rub it in. And I was like, where did she hear that? And what's more is now I'm under conviction and I've got to do something about it. If we enter into a competition with our child to win, we've already lost. It is never about getting the best of our kid. It's always about helping them transform. And sometimes that's going to mean that we don't get the respect we want or we don't get the affirmation we want as parents. But we always have to keep that in our mind. What's the ultimate goal here? It's that our kids will be productive adults someday, right? Good people, loving Jesus. And sometimes that means we're going to feel like they got the best of us, and it's okay. Because we have been called not to provoke. That was one of those hard words of Paul, right? Don't provoke, but teach. Teach them what it means to live right. And that's why it gives them long life, because if we don't teach our kids right from wrong, the consequences are pretty obvious. They're going to go out and do whatever they think their peers want them to do for acceptance. If they don't get acceptance from home, they're going to get it somewhere else, and it's not going to be good. They're going to not have the foundation they need to make decisions. When we adopted our son, uh, we were told in some of the classes that some kids never crawl. I kid you not. So these kids are raised sometimes 24-7 in a crib, maybe getting picked up for half an hour a day at best. And so they will pull themselves up on the rails and they'll walk around the crib and they never crawl. And what ends up happening is it not only affects their physical abilities when they run and when they do sports, but also affects their emotional um, and cognitive development. They don't know how to relate to people in the same way. And I don't know why it works. That's what psychology tells me. But I do know that sometimes they will take these kids back, put them on their hands and knees and teach them to crawl again because it helps them fix some of the broken development. The principle here is the same thing that Paul's saying, that if we don't give our kids the foundation they need, they're going to be broken. Parents, we have a responsibility. They don't just need to obey us. We need to take the time to teach them the right things. Without a foundation, kids are doomed to failure. Without a, a father... Our kids are a wreck. I used to work in a prison. Uh, I like to say I spent a year in prison for doing ministry without a license. 
nice thing was I got to go home every night or every day because I worked night shift. And uh, there were a lot of men in that prison that were there not because they were stupid, because they were really smart, and not because they were lazy, because they spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to beat the system. They were there, most of them, because nobody taught them right from wrong. In fact, we know that 63% of youth suicides are from fatherless homes. 90% of all homeless and runaway children are from fatherless homes. 85% of all children who show behavior disorders are from fatherless homes. 80% of rapists with anger problems come from fatherless homes, which is 14 times the average. 71% of all high school dropouts come from fatherless homes. And children from fatherless homes are significantly more likely to end up in prison. Children need two parents to teach them the way. The reason the statistics talk about the dads is because the moms are there, right? Dads, we have a responsibility to be a part of our kids' lives because they're not going to know right from wrong. And if we know somebody who's grown up in a home that doesn't have a dad, maybe we need to spend a little time mentoring that young man or young woman because they need to know positive role models from both males and females in their lives to get the foundation that God intended. We are not to provoke our children out of selfish displays of power, but to teach them with love so that they will have full and happy lives in God. Verse 5 says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling in singleness of heart. As you obey Christ, not only while being washed, but in order to please them, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. God, I love being the guest speaker when I get one of the really controversial verses of the Bible. Thank you, Pastor Keith. Um, typically, when you hear a message on this, this scripture, you're going to hear it go something like this. Slavery was different in the Bible. It's not the same, and it's just a principle we can apply to any authority in our lives. Now, I'm not going to say that those are 100% wrong, but they do two things that we should never do. First thing is, we should never just jump over a scripture to the application because we miss things that we should deal with as Christians. It's, it's not being intellectually honest with, with the scripture. The second thing is, is if we do that, we ignore something that's in the Bible uh, that is, uh, it's not that the Bible was sin, but it refers to sin in our world. And I think it sells short the condition of people who've had to deal with slavery. And I know you're thinking, well, maybe that, that happened a long time ago, but it still happens today. I, there's millions of people in countries in the Middle East that are in indentured service that can be beaten, that cannot be released and allowed to go back home. And very similar to a, the state that we find the slaves of the Bible in. So we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about this. Slavery in the New Testament, uh, which was maybe a little different than from the Old Testament, was so common that you would be surprised if the Bible didn't address it in some form. Paul is writing to a Roman audience here in Ephesians. So we know that a Roman house was composed of the father, the mother, the children, and slaves. Slaves were taken either by uh, war conquest or they sold themselves into it because they were so poor that they had no other options. And once sold into slavery, their families could be sold to somebody else, they could be beaten, they could be killed, and they could not leave unless they had the funds to purchase their, uh, their own autonomy. It wasn't based on race, but it was based on condition and culture. During this time, there were about 7.5 million slaves, either by circumstance or conquest, in the Roman world. And so Paul, 
he's talking to a clear situation that's taking place in, in his day. And he said, okay, how do I address this? And now one of the things I want to say to you is, why doesn't the Bible just come right out and say, this is sin, do something about that? I don't have every answer, but I will say this. Um, it's a new church. And what Jesus and Paul are doing is they're establishing a new church with the gospel, and that is their primary mission in the scriptures. So as they're addressing this, their primary cause is to connect people to God. And our behavior flows out of that relationship with God. And as we look at this passage, Paul aligns our hearts to God in such a way that we begin to behave in ways that act accordingly. Secondly, the economic reality was that if this was an abolition movement, it would have overshadowed um, the cause of the gospel. And so what Paul does instead is he aligns the way that we should treat each other in the situation that we're in. Paul says, you have been operating this way, in a way where there was injustice, where there was power, where there was um, subjugation. And I tell you, you are no longer slave nor free, but you are one before Christ Jesus. We are all one at the foot of the cross. There is no one person that's better than another, and we should treat each other accordingly. Paul looked beyond the current status of his day, and he pointed to the eternal, and he said, there are things at play here that are bigger than the status that we find ourselves in society. In Roman society, you weren't somebody unless you were over the top of somebody else. And he said that is no longer the way that we're supposed to operate as Christians. By pointing out the larger truth that all were created equal in the sight of God, he set the wheels of freedom in motion. Christ did not simply come to fix the now, but to orient us to the future. And as we move forward in God, we have to come to the logical conclusion conclusions and convictions that there are things in our world that are wrong and we should do something about them we learn from this that the way that we see god can change the world and what we believe about god and his nature matters it's not enough to just talk about the niceness of being a christian or the do's or the don'ts about being a christian which isn't what paul's doing here he's orienting us to god and saying when we belong to god we belong to god so entirely it transforms the way that we see the world around us those in slavery were called to lives of faithful obedience and service acknowledging the fact that they might not be released tomorrow what do you do when you're in an abusive situation that you can't get out of you put your heart oriented towards god and you live unto him not unto the situation that you're in even when no one's looking. Paul says, we can't necessarily get out of the, the condition we're in. We're in a sinful world, and people do broken, awful, sinful things. You may not be able to break free from that. But while you're in that situation, live as unto God, not as unto the abusive authority that you're under. We live in a world where, thankfully, slavery has been abolished. But we still sometimes come into abusive situations, don't we? How many people, you don't raise your hand, but you've been in that, that bad work environment where the boss keeps moving the, the goalposts. He's abusive. He, the way that he, uh, I'm using the, the male pronoun here because it's usually some guy that's just a jerk, right? He's yelling at you. He, you're never going to make it up. He's never going to uh, nice, be nice to you. He's going to succeed on the backs of your accomplishments and take credit for them. Now, we do have the option sometimes just to go get another job, which is great, but sometimes we don't. 
those of us in the military understand this completely. Uh, the will of God comes with the next assignment and the next uh, supervisor. So what do I do when the will of God is to work for somebody that I can't stand? Paul says, and I've been less than awesome at this, that we need to smile, we need to work unto God even when nobody's looking, and we need to submit. And if this, I will add, if the system is in place to challenge the abuse, then we need to use the system as it's been given to us. So if we have a, an a inspection system that we can appeal to, or we can use a chain of command, or if there's some way to deal with the abuse in the workplace, we're in the society, we need to use that. And thank God that we have those tools uh, that the Romans didn't, that Paul wrote to. But do it from a heart condition that's submitted to God. Don't try to abuse or get the best of the person that you feel is abusive, but try to honor them as you honor God. Verse 9, it says, And masters, do the same to them. Stop threatening them, for you know that both of you have the same master in heaven. With him there's no partiality. Well, we talked about the sin that this system reflected, but let's talk about what it means to have authority in the world today. You know, I don't think there's anything more difficult than adjusting to the next rank. You, you think you've got it down pat. You see, when I get into that, to that seat, when I get that promotion, and I think this applies to any job, but uh, this is my world coming from the military, I think, man, when I'm a major, this is gonna be easy. I'm gonna do it so different than the majors that went before me, and then you get there and realize, wow, this is a wreck. This is so much harder than it looks. And sometimes, just like being a parent, you can think, well, if I just get the best of them in the situation, or if I just uh, exert my authority this one time really solidly, then I'll never have to deal with this again. And that is not always the case. You know, you've gone from being one of the guys to becoming the man, right? Uh, and there is a difference um, between dealing with the mistakes in the workplace and trying to control everything that happens. And I think sometimes we have to acknowledge where our own sense of fallenness is meeting the problems in the workplace, right? Because as a boss, you're going to have to correct stuff. You're going to have to say, okay, you're clearly stepping out of the standards here and I've got to bring you back in. And you can try to do that gentle and you might be put in a position where you can't do that gentle. But then there's other times where it's really just a challenge to your own sense of security, your own sense of value, or your own sense of um, competition or jealousy. And when those things rear their ugly head, you have to acknowledge them and say, this is not about their behavior, this is about my own insecurity. Because if we try to lead in our authority from insecurity, we are sinning. So I, what I try to do is, when I have a problem with somebody, I try to sit back and, and take a step back, which is really hard for me because I'm very extroverted. I like to just deal with everything right on the spot. And that is not a good way to lead uh, when you've got a problem. You have to sit back and sift through it and, and think through everything that's happening. And I ask myself, okay, is this about their behavior or about my insecurity? And if it's about my insecurity, then I try to correct myself. Sometimes I come to the conclusion that it's both, that a little bit my insecurity and a little bit that they need to change. And so when that happens, I go to a peer or I go to a, um, a mentor and I say, okay, this is the situation as I see it. What would you do? And I sift and I try to synthesize both how I'm seeing it and what they would do, how they see it, and then come up with a solution. 
because that helps me separate out myself from what's actually happening. And then sometimes it's not me. Sometimes it's just that person. And I have to give myself permission to correct that, even though it might be painful for them. Because ultimately, as a leader, even painful correction will help them be better at what they want out of life. Does that make sense? So we should not abuse those that we have authority over. And we should, in all ways, try to guide as God would guide us, gently and with kindness. In all things, we should pray for God's guidance, gentleness, and courage to make difficult corrections. Build up in love, keep truth, and love your focus. All right, so Ephesians teaches us that we're all equal in God's eyes. There's no senior member at the foot of the cross. We don't stand taller, we stand equal. And we need to see each other as that. We need to obey in the position where we're placed. We need to honor our parents. We need to recognize that change in this world doesn't come automatically. It comes from understanding who God is. And that will motivate us to change the injustice that we see. And we should not lord a position over someone else, but we should serve them just as Christ served the church. The Bible actually uses the terminology that Christ did not take his exalted position, but he lowered himself like a slave that we, might not, that we might know God and be saved. We live in a world that does not understand authority. We live in a generation raised without two parents that rejects it. So what's that going to look like as we as an older generation go forward? And, and I say that because the church is getting older. But we have a generation that's hungry for mentoring. How do we take the good news of the gospel and find a way to mentor the generation coming up behind us that doesn't understand authority, doesn't understand um, right from wrong? We have societies that still subjugate people as property in the very nations where we deploy to conduct operations. How do we speak truth into the culture around us? We may have been raised with improper subjugating values ourselves. We, we may have had parents that abused or mistreated us. How do we break that pattern with our own children? Paul gives us God's model. Respect and obey authority with a smile. Honor your parents. Don't abuse your power. Change in the world starts with change in the home. So let's embrace it. And I'm going to say a prayer for you, and I'm going to end with my dad's favorite blessing, uh, his name was Patrick, and he loved Irish blessings. So let me pray for you. Father God, I ask that you would help us to orient to you, that we would be able to conduct uh, our behavior with respect and honor to the authority placed over us, and that we would use it with um, responsibility as it's been given us to love and to lead others. Uh, and I pray, God, that you would change our hearts, change our homes, and use that change to make a difference in the world around us. And now may the road rise to meet you. May the wind always be at your back. May the sunshine warm upon your face and the rains fall soft upon your fields. And until we meet again, may God hold you in the palm of his hand. Amen.